Welcome to Artcast Season 3, Episode 3. Artcast is presented by Matt G, who is the Programme Area Manager of Fine Art at the Chelsea Centre, which is part of Morley College London. The podcast is a series of informal discussions with professional artists and designers, accompanied by students who are studying with us here at the Chelsea Centre. This time around, we'll be joined by Emma Allen from our HNC in Fine Art, who joined us on the last episode with Martin Parr. We also have with us Steve Harrison, who is on our HNC in Fine Art as well. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Ryan Gander, OBE. I was going to refer to him as a conceptual artist, but I've heard in the past it's not a term he exactly enjoys, and instead he's identified in the past as a sort of neo-conceptualist propaganda amateur philosopher. His work is really wide-ranging. He works with sculpture, clothing apparel, writing, architecture, painting, typefaces, publications, television shows, performance. His work is incredibly vast, so don't try and pinpoint what he does. Ryan was awarded an OBE in 2017. He's also been elected as a Royal Academician in the category of sculpture. In 2005, he won the Balois Art Prize at Basel. So the first question we ask all our guests is simply, what is your favourite colour and why? (laughs) Favourite colour is... I don't like colours. I actually am really, really colour blind, which is pretty weird for someone who's interested in visual art so i used to ask people in the studio to help me with color or my kids but you might notice that when you look at all of my work together if you made a huge poster of thumbnail images of lots of things that i've done most of it is black white gray or silver Mm. Mm. so you look for the tones i don't i only use color uh i'm not not retinally not visually i use it cognitively so i'll use blue and yellow because blue and yellow is the color of the european flag and ikea and the sun in the sky so it means optimism black and yellow is the color uh, colors of a bee so it means danger so i'll only use color based on the, uh, the its meaning not on what how i visually feel about it i am a feely person it's not like i've got no emotions and I'm some weird dry faceless conceptualist but everything in my understanding is part of semiotic language so color falls into that it's like a color palette is a color a choice of color could also be a choice of um any other decision whether you use humor whether you make the spectator feel anguish all these things are colors to me Mm. so i guess that's probably one of the most uh comprehensive answers we've had to that question i guess it sort of fits your practice quite well in that Mm. you make so many different uh pieces of conceptual art but also uh work within fashion you work within tv do you ever sort of get fed up with people trying to sort of pigeonhole or pin down your work in order to seek some kind of comfort or, or sort of say Oh, right, that's that's a Ryan Gander right there. It's funny because we're all human, right? This is the way I see it. We're all human and, you know, life's pretty stressful. We all know we're going to die at the end of it and we don't know what death is. That's a lot to deal with. Uh, so we spend most of our lives distracting ourselves and we don't like to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations or difficult or challenging situations. I mean... Yeah, what, why would you do that when you can have an easy life, you know? Why watch a Jean-Luc Godard or a Jacques Tati film with French subtitles that's very slow and drawn out when you can watch Fast and Furious that's completely unchallenging? So, But it's the same in contemporary art, isn't it? You, you find, especially in the commercial sector of contemporary art, as far as art collectors are concerned, most art collectors you know, don't want to be provoked. They want something that's going to affirm all the great stuff that they already know. And that's why you often find that artists repeat themselves and make the same work again and again, just in different colours and different sizes. Um, 
but by very definition that's not contemporary art that's not what contemporary art's supposed to do it's supposed to ask questions and challenge people and um, make us think of things that we wouldn't usually think about so yeah it's a bit of a, a seesaw I mean I I can't repeat myself because I'd just do something else I'd be a writer or something I think I'd just get bored so I have to do lots of different things um because my mind goes too fast and I just I think I'd be very depressed if I wasn't like cognitively overactive um but saying that it's not great for your art career I mean I'm all right obviously I've got a studio with central heating which I I always thought when I was younger I always thought if I get a studio that's got central heating i've totally made it made it do you know that's very funny because it's very cold upstairs where we're working today (laughs) sorry i'm boiling it's quite warm in the studio though it's really warm down here (laughs) i might have to whip the jumper off in a minute art studio is pretty cold isn't it you have to you have to go through that coldness though to get to the central heating you can't have central heating from the word go if if that's a little metaphor for you know, like when you start off, I mean, I'm at the beginning of something really, although I'm not, I'm not exactly young. Um, I was thinking that I read some stuff about you and you said that when you were younger and you made stuff and you did things, you felt a bit weird because you perhaps thought that, that other people weren't doing it quite as much yeah. as you. And that when you became, you know, if, if I, I don't like doing inverted commas, but as a successful yeah. practitioner, you said you didn't feel weird because that was your job. So yeah, and that's that, that gives it a sense of normality, and uh, then I, that I, I thought I don't. This is a question, by the way. So when you were doing it, without being successful inverted commas, and you were feeling weird, did you feel like an artist? Um, and my question is, at what point? Because I don't feel I am an artist, you know. But at what point did you sort of come to the conclusion that actually, you, when you said earlier that, that you have to do things? that you felt, yes, I'm an artist, and next time I get my passport, I'll write artist on occupation. I still don't write artist. Oh, do you not? Cause, no, because people ask loads of annoying questions. <laughs> <laughs> they, if you if I get in a taxi and they say, what do you do, governor? Because all taxi drivers say governor, don't they? I do say, <laughs> um, I say gov, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I always say, I'm a teacher. If you say you're a teacher, they're just like, oh, right, secondary school, and like, yeah, secondary school, or I teach art. But if you say artist, you just get into some like really long drawn out argument about Tracy Emin's bed, or you know, a pile of bricks, or some the 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 angel of the north, or all the stuff, all the really obvious artworks that you know. So, <clears throat> um, so I don't say I'm an artist, but I think. I don't know if I am an artist because I do so many other things. I feel more like a director, to be honest. It's funny because at the studio, we have the job titles of everyone is based on the film industry. And I thought that was a better way of doing it. So we have directors, producers, uh, runners, all the types of people you'd find on a film set. And I think that has more of an affinity with the art world than, I mean, what else do you say? Artist's assistant. Sounds like someone makes tea, doesn't it? It's, it's a probably role. Well, I probably do. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So. Yeah. So who are the, um, the actors, the artists? That, would you do say? I ever act, act well, as would, an artist? <laughs> yeah. Would you describe yourself then as an actor, or you and other art? You know, your other studio artists. If you work with other studio artists. Um. Yeah. I. I don't know. I guess. I. I feel like what I do is, you know, like a conductor. They they just interpret the more the the music, or slightly earlier than it happens, which is quite quite a mad thing to watch, isn't it? Because they're totally out of time. But everyone in the orchestra is like incredibly talented at their own things. I feel like that. I'm not really good at anything. I can do stuff. I can I could make your dress right now without a pattern, or could like edit edit a video. Or I mean, I can use a recording studio. Um, I can. I can't draw. Um, I'm quite good at talking. I think about ideas. 
Um, but I'm not massively skilled at anything, really. That's interesting. But on that level of like project management, uh, you you also have a lot of pseudonyms, and I'm thinking of the locked room scenario piece, which is the Art Angel Commission, where you had a fictitious group of seven fictionalized mm. artists. So I was wondering mm. if you could talk a little bit more about the characters. If there's any particular sort of yeah. like qualities, genders, ages, or age groups you were sort of interested in. I've been making work under under other artist names for I don't know twenty nearly twenty five years maybe. How old am I? Yeah, nearly twenty five years, and um there's loads of them now and there's writers as well and film directors there's a whole like network of fictionalized ideas and it, it came out of the fact that when i was at college in amsterdam i made a, a show in the college gallery that was i'd made all the works but i made a group show and the and it was a way to like challenge myself to explore different visual languages and to try and avoid or divert myself from any stylistic signature because I like to see group shows. And I went into a group show once and I thought, wouldn't this be amazing if it was all by one person? And then I set myself the task that, that what that's what I'd do from then on. I would make, I would be layers of artists. So I guess the, the two most interesting artists or the ones um, the most popular artist i've made work at under is spencer anthony um who was born in cornwall 1942 um and he he's represented by photos of my father uh and his work is most like mine then there's two other male artists one is called santo stern and one is called Aston Ernest and Aston Ernest is a, a, a anagram of Santo Stern and they're opposite they're they're like nemesis of each other and one of them represents all the characteristics that I wish I could have as an artist and one of them represents all the characteristics that I am glad I don't have so it gives me a, a way of exercising my agency to make really bad crass sensational art but also it gives me the agency to make work that has to be better than what I can ever make and push myself. So there is kind of like a system to, to keep me active and keep me making things like an excuse for making stuff. There's uh, my favorite artist is probably Vivi Enkyo, who was born in Hiroshima, Japanese artist, um, something a bit dada and weird and performative about her work and that's because i find that the hardest type of work to make um so that they all all the characters they're all part of me but they're they're almost my they're my desires as well as uh the you know all the the ideals that i dislike about art so santo is really commercial crass obvious um yeah just really lacks ambiguity in the artwork it's very didactic and and self-explanatory types of work which sometimes is a relief to make but i could never put my name to that do you think that um you sort of i'm not sure i believe you when you say you can't draw and you can't do this and you can't do that um it sounds so. No like one it. believes anything I say. Because <laughs> okay. I'm beginning to <laughs> no, realise. it's true. It. Every but, time I say, like, oh, yeah. I've made this box and this is inside it, yeah. everyone's like, yeah, right. No, well, I used to watch um, Top Gear, and I know it's not very popular. I like the fact that Jeremy Clarkson didn't know how the engine worked, you know, but he was a, you know, he, was, he, he, he made those programmes about cars. And I wondered if not being able to draw particularly well, because you sort of tend to think if you're at art college, you know, you've got to be fantastic at drawing. You've got to be the best painter. You've got to be a great sculptor. But say you're not, you're, you're, you're kind of what you're saying there. It kind of is quite liberating for, for people that might be a bit ambidextrous. You know, they're, 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 they're quite, yeah. they're, you know, like you can do a lot of things, but you're master of none. Doesn't necessarily yeah. get a good press. But you, you, you seem to be kind of saying you've adapted what you can and can't do to a 
a kind of a genre that you've sort of created for yourself and you're able to explore all your kind of slight fantasies about, you know, if I, if I could do these things, it would be like this and you can get other people to do it or get help to do it. That sounds like a good idea to me. Yeah, well, I think the, um, yeah, I guess drawing and, I mean, we're talking about figurative, figuration, aren't we? So, I mean, figurative drawing and figurative sculpting is a massive burden on an artist because why would you want to represent something that already exists and make something that looks just like it? It doesn't make any sense at all. The whole point of art is to make something that doesn't exist. So, um, yeah. It's almost like um, a freedom to push the boundaries in any direction in yeah. any way without those kind of rules. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. I, I think, I think like, who was it? I think it was, uh, Klaus Oldenburg, maybe probably wrong. Um, was it him? No. Uh, uh, said art is the science of freedom. It wasn't him. It was Joseph Boyes, I think. Said art is the science of freedom. That just makes total sense when you think about what art is. Art is everything that doesn't exist yet. You know, and and for me, it's funny as I get older and older. You know, your life you run out of days. The days that you'll be alive decrease, and when you've got kids and you have to like look after kids and and your world slows down like I don't know like 15 years ago I was on my own living in LA driving around in a Toyota Corolla didn't know where I'd be the next week one week to the next it's amazing but you your life changes and you feel like things are restricted and running out and that happens to everyone whether you're go through you've gone through that on or not like but um what's amazing about art is it's only about potential when i wake up in the morning i'm like i can do what the fuck i want i can be a racing car driver i can design a pack of playing cards i can like learn the cello and it can all be my job and that's just so liberating and amazing it's like i just feel mad lucky that i'm doing what i do quite naturally as a job that i get paid for doing it's just i'm like the luck of the luckiest person on the i feel like i'm the luckiest person on the planet and you touch on family quite regularly and i guess it's quite mm. a poignant thing to talk about and mm. um i mean i recently read keith herring's journals where he talked about working with children and really enjoying the sort of innocence inhibitions lack of judgment and things like that um i know you've if you got any collaborations planned with your daughters again i know there was that uh work at the uh listen gallery and i know i've heard in a lot of interviews you, you're sort of referring to your dad as a hero and how he sort of helped you and even even freed up a garage space for for your studio right yeah at a young age and, mm. yeah yeah no family's interesting in it because i mean especially we're in this era aren't we of um, identity everyone's completely obsessed with identity which i think is massively counterproductive to humankind i think like you know we should be obsessed with collectivity and all the things we have in common not how different we are from each other it seems stupid to me but anyway everyone's allowed their own opinion but i think the thing about identity for me is i'm in a wheelchair i can't walk so and i don't I don't identify, as people say, as a, as being disabled because I've lived a life where if I if I identified as being disabled, I wouldn't have done anything because I would have been thinking about being disabled all the time. Right, right into British Rail about I can't get up this ramp and trying to find a house. You know, just it would just I just prefer to concentrate on all the stuff I do I can do, and I'd, and yeah, I guess. So I have a weird relationship with the idea of identity because the identity that I should probably take ownership over, I ignore. And I guess my interest in, in identity is the sort of genetic strains that run through family. I think like that's majorly interesting. And the way that, you know, my son could be me and my dad could be me and my daughters could be me and there's the, but we're not, we're all born in different eras and the world changes at like 
neck breaking speed around us and as the world changes we change and that makes us different i just i mean also my dad's an engineer he worked in a car factory and he's the most philosophical person i've ever met in my life you know and it so there's also all these interesting stereotypes of what creativity is but we're all creative whether you're like my my youngest son is autistic and he's like he has loads of he's only like three and he has loads of difficulties with lots of things but he can arrange objects in a line around the house in a way that sarah c or mark manders could not do you know what i mean he's like the and and we're and i'm just interested in humans and they think the my best case studies are the people that are close to me and it sounds like my family's a petri dish but i mean i observe my family because i'm around my family you know um do you think that um when you were younger that was a motivation like to please your dad or your mum that was a kind of a a big motivation to do stuff or did it come more it's from weird you, just, yeah, no, you were just doing it because you like it's funny because i don't usually talk about these things but i'm i'm willing to um but uh no it's strange because my dad said to us god i never talk about these things because then someone keeps changing my wikipedia page to ryan gander is a british disabled artist and the guy that does all the proofreading and editorial at the studio keeps changing it back and taking disabled out. And if I talk about it, then people would be like, now we have him talking on record about disability. It means he's a disabled artist. It's like, so it gets in the way. But anyway, my dad, I'll tell you, my dad um, said, what was the question? No, I just well, said, uh, I, mean, uh, I was thinking um, for, my, for myself, you know, why why am I doing this? You know, why am I, why am I putting, oh, putting yeah, myself yeah, through him, yeah. something? I'm slightly older than everybody else. Why, stuff like but why that. am I doing it? And I'm, I guess it's an, it's an obvious question to ask someone who is doing it, why, why they do it and what kind of got them going in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think I did read something about you saying that you in your early stages anyway, that you did stuff partially to please. Um, it might have been your dad. It might have been your mum. I can't remember what you said, but. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I said that, um, every, you know, every, every kid wants their parents to be proud of them. But interestingly, they're proud of different things. You know, they're pr my mum's proud when I'm on the TV, but when like I win the Prix de Rome or something amazing. You, you must know, have been then... very proud when you got when you got the OBE as well. Yeah, they were they were a lot more proud than I was definitely. Um, not that I didn't like having it; it was really nice. And but um, no, just it's just one of those you can't really you couldn't I couldn't say no to that because it would have broken my mother's heart. You can't. Do but that, um, yeah. yeah, all mums like that. I I learned really early on that. When I, when I graduated from Manchester Metropolitan University, uh, I got a first, and there was only a couple of people that got firsts in the whole fine art faculty. And that. And I didn't go to the graduation because I thought I was like the kind of idiot, lefty, militant artist who was like, whoever's going to give me this scroll and shake my hand doesn't know what I made. So I don't want it. It's really arrogant about it. So I didn't go. And my mum found out. She said, when's your graduation? And I was like, oh, shit, here we go. And I really regretted it, actually. So, uh, yeah, my whole view on achievement and the celebration of achievement has changed recently. Someone sat next to us at a dinner recently and said that I was the type of person that didn't celebrate my achievements. But it's also because... I don't know, it's also maybe a wheelchair thing about, you know, we're in this era where everyone with any different is so inspirational. The word inspirational. I was at the gym on Friday and these two lads who were a bit scally outside knocked on my car window when I came out the gym and they said, you're an inspiration, you are, man. <laughs> and I, I felt like saying, you've been watching strictly too much. That idea that someone's an inspiration it's like and i thought god do you, do you know how many books i've written and they're not even saying i'm an inspiration for that they're saying i'm an inspiration because they've seen me sweating me <laughs>
ass off in the gym. It made it's just like it completely gave me such perspective on what people think is important and what you know. Anyway, I'm gone off on a tangent. Why do why do I make art? I make art because uh, I needed jobs. Not many jobs I can do. Um, I do art because I little I have a bit of a hyperactive imagination. Uh, I do art because I was going to say do art because I love the history of art and the art world. But if I'm honest that it is changing drastically year by year. Um, talk, talking about identity again, I read somewhere where you weren't too keen on being identified as a conceptual artist. There was a quote where you sort of said a, a sort of neo-conceptualist, propagandist, amateur philosopher, yeah. uh, which I love. Um, but yeah, is that something that, again, and I guess with the, we're, we're obviously a, a fantastic achievement again was uh, becoming a Royal Academician, but then obviously then you sort of have to be identified as a sculptor in in this case it was so it's weird isn't it that you have to be identified as a sculptor mm. but it's the hardest one to get into so i was really proud of that because oh, there's uh loads of painters and there's there's but there's loads and i mean there's loads more places for painters and then there's printmakers but printmakers seems to only be a few people actually make prints i don't know thing is when you say conceptual artist what you think of is boring black and white work that explains itself or is a kind of explanation of an idea and i'm just not into that i like work that makes people laugh and makes people cry makes people jealous makes people go home on the bus and be really annoyed that they hadn't made it makes kids like hypnotized for an hour conceptual art can't do any of those things so it's it when people say conceptual art i think what they're referring to is that it's ideas based it's more art for the brain than it is art for the body or art for the eyes and i guess for you it's storytelling a story behind an object in particular i'm thinking about a watch that you acquired yeah no yeah that i mean every object in the world has a story you know every object everything has an idea behind it and a history and most of those are really interesting no matter what you know that the this object in this kind of semiotic equation that it holds is you know so and i think it's also something to do i mean the watch was given to me by uh an art collector japanese guy uh called masamichi katayama and he does he's an interior designer sort of architect interior designer and he did like Uniqlo in New York. He does like really good stuff. But it's funny that he's Japanese because for me, in Shinto, the Shinto religion, from it's part of Japanese culture, all objects have a thing called kami, K-A-M-I, which is like a soul of an object. So gods could be a, a cup or a branch or a phone or a person. Which I mean, essentially, that is conceptual art, isn't it? it or it is neo conceptual art. It's completely what I'm really interested in. So, yeah. But he, I there was a big sculpt. I had a show at Hermes in Ginza, and there was a big sculpture in the show that I'd made there, and I knew no one would buy, um, and I knew we'd probably have to pay the shipping back or the storage there or destroy it. And he said he liked it, and I was drunk, and I said, "Well, give us your watch, and you can have it." When the show's over, you can just take it. And he gave us his watch, but it was a Rolex Daytona, a black limited edition one, which is amazing because I'd never buy something that expensive for myself because I'd feel too guilty. Um, and then I made a cast of it. I worked out pretty quickly because I'd never worn a watch that when you wear a watch, you feel, I felt unbalanced and felt like I needed some sort of self-writing because there was more weight on one side than the other. Um, so I made a cast of it and a, a bracelet that went with it. So now I have the same watch as a sculpture that I wear. I mean, I don't wear it because it's too expensive. It's just in the safe. But uh, on the other on the other wrist, that was the plan. And strangely, that's it turned into an entire body of work because when I made that watch, 
the cast one that's just solid with no face. It's just a piece of metal. And I looked at it. I realized that it's better not knowing what time it is and being reminded of the value of time. And the last three years I've made work basically around that idea, the idea of attention economy and that our agency and our attention and time is far more valuable than money. So we all bang on about freedom all the time, don't we? And how it, how our freedoms and liberty and, you know, blah, 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 blah. it's like most of us, especially me, don't even use the freedom that we have. We don't like exercise the agency we have, but we're always asking for more and trying to get more. So, and then the other thing is, you know, if you gave, if you had three days left to live, would you spend it on Instagram? No. Or if you're a billionaire who is terminally ill, would you give all your worldly possessions and all your wealth for an extra year? Yeah. Yeah. Is this one so, of the main reasons you decided not to base yourself in London and in Suffolk because you you value your time more than the money sort yeah, of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's well, I was too distracted in London, but that's the same thing. I was distracted by going to openings um, and being excessive and not using my time wisely. And if you, I mean, where I live, like on the coast in the forest, in a town near a forest, in the middle of nowhere. It's very, very, very lightly populated. And um it's it's two hours, two and a half hours to London in the car on a train, which is long enough to make it a pain in the arse, which is good. Um and you know, when I when I first had a studio in London, like I lived in London for, I don't know, years and years, decade. And when I had a studio there, I'd teach in Manchester on a Monday drive to Sheffield, Tuesday, Wednesday, teach there, Thursday, Friday, I'd teach in Leeds, and then I'd drive back to London, sleep for a day, go to my studio in Hoxton that was paying extortionate rent for, make hardly any work on Sunday, and then get in Moreno Clear again on a Monday and repeat the cycle. And I did that for two years. And then I was like, this doesn't make any sense at all because I'm not seeing anything of London. I'm just paying double the rent. And I just realized that time and space are the greatest assets for artists. It's not necessarily money. And there's a vicious circle, isn't there, that if you have a studio, um, you spend all your time working to pay the rent on the studio, which means you don't have your time to go to the studio. It's like impossible equation. So, yeah, when I we we just decided to move here, and yeah, I'd get like four extra hours a day just by not being in London, and everything's half price. That's a lot of hours. And it is a lot. I mean, that you just. I'm not. I don't mean like from traveling. I mean like from being distracted. I just end up in the pub with the same people every night, having the same conversation. There's nothing remotely productive about it yeah well you can do that in suffolk as well but uh i mean i am from lowestoft i know i'm sure you don't live in lowestoft yeah i'm from lowestoft yeah all right so, lowey lowey yeah yeah oh, you don't sound you don't sound like you've picked up any of the accent so far no <laughs> uh, but, uh, do well boy oh that's not bad boy well maybe i'll <laughs> ask you i'll ask you my last question in a suffolk accent is that all right because <laughs> I quite like there was a, there was a piece I saw on Google and that was uh, that was um, a, a toilet seat with a microphone on top of it and um, <laughs> I thought that was I mean you did say earlier that some of your work you quite you, you'd like people to leave laughing or f finding it amusing and I found that amusing and um, it reminded me of um, when I was teenager I, st I was playing the guitar. And I found that the acoustics in the bathroom were fantastic, you know, nice to sit. Sometimes I'd sit on the toilet, but normally on the bath and I'd yeah. strum away, you know, and you probably hear the sort of incipient harmonics in the in there and it sounded better, you know. But I, I, I noticed that you'd written something, or maybe you hadn't written this and someone said you'd written it. You were talking about a collision of ideas, right? So you, yeah. And I thought, okay, so does he mean... It's not normal for a toilet seat to have a microphone on it. Well, that's true. Um, that's true. And it's a sort of a, without thinking about it too much, 
these funny little things can happen to you in a day and you just just brush them off you know that's just that's just something that happens you know and you kind of you know you focus on something that i think has a certain resonance you know these these little quirky things can happen to you in the day and you've made something out of it whereas i wouldn't have done i'd have just thought oh I've left my microphone on the toilet seat and I'll, I'll go and get it and put it back in the right place, you know, not give it a second thought. I think that's because uh, we're conditioned to only see things when they're highlighted for us as being significant. Um, so when you go into an art space, you, your attention is heightened and you take everything as being significant. Um, but I mean, I just I made a work last year that's this ticket machine, and when you go into the museum, you wave your hand, and it spits prints out a ticket, and on the ticket is a longitude latitude number of infinite locations on land, not on sea. You know, like a deli counter ticket machine, and you take it and you put it in your phone, it sends you somewhere else, and the work's called a machine to send you somewhere else, and the point of it was that I wanted to start this. It was a retrospective, like a mid, you know, like a. It was 150 of my works in a museum, so I wanted to start it with a work that was like non-ego. So I thought I'd make a work that tells you to leave, and points out that the world is way more interesting than the world that is highlighted by what we understand to be the institutions of art and the mechanisms of art. And it's true, you can walk down the street and you know our minds take in so much information that we don't even know we are prejudging and judging everything in nanoseconds a million times a second that we don't even realize from the fact that someone has hair on the bottom of their trousers that suggests they have a dog you know to like a cigarette butt on a street corner with lipstick on it that suggests someone was waiting there it, these are these i mean it's very sherlock holmes but this is the language of semiotics this is signs and signifiers and natural and conventional signs and the world is made up of this and we most people don't know how to talk about semiotics but we all instinctively do it which i think is fascinating and then we only start to talk about it when we stick it on a pedestal for us all to marvel over in a museum but we don't actually need art. You could just wander around the world. And if you really look and think, the world's full of such mad, interesting stuff, you know, especially cities. That is the that is one of the downsides of living where I live. And, you know, I have to travel like half the year. Otherwise, I, I just don't get enough input, you know, in my mind. Just so, on that point, do you mean yeah. seeing new things is uh, inputs? So to see a different um, view or different cultures or different yeah. artworks. Uh, so what I do is when I travel, I take photos on my phone and then I print the photos out and then I keep a massive archive in a room here that's got hundreds of thousands of photos in it that are all categorised and uh, grouped together and labelled with post-it notes in box files, like index card files. And that's basically... And it looks it looks like I'm one of those mad murderers, you know. When you in the movies, you go down to the basement, and there's like the the master plan for the murders. It looks a bit weird like that. And people, when they go in that room, they all always say, "Oh, you've had so many ideas. You've got so many ideas." But what's weird about that is everyone has that amount of ideas. The only difference is everyone forgets them. Nobody, no one prints them out and puts a paper clip on them and a little post-it note and writes, uh, you know, whatever the idea is on it and puts it in a card system. So it's it's just, and the, I think the other thing about the the way that I work by collecting and collating ideas and then using that as a resource is that, yeah, I don't know, the thing about having ideas is the brain works in two ways. I think you have like a deep storage at the back of your brain and then you have RAM, you know, like random accessed memory in a computer at the front of your brain. And the RAM is tiny. I, I, I can't remember anything because I rely on too many people to remember stuff for us. Um, and I probably could if I trained myself, but I'd never get the chance to try. Um, 
but basically you keep very little in your ram at the front of your brain in your consciousness but all this stuff is in the back of your brain but you need a, a kind of catalyst mm. or you need a prompt of, yeah prompt exactly to bring it back to the front to be able to use it and put it in the right system so this archive is essentially a massive memory and if it's all there in front of you then that those collisions of ideas that you were talking about before they happen accidentally on purpose you sort of orchestrate that that transaction you can, equation. you can then manufacture collisions of photos that you've taken you could combine one that you took in place a with the one that you took in place b or whatever you've there's a whole myriad of um combinations yeah. if you've got the archive uh, yeah. but you also need the front bit of your brain as well which i sort of tend to think is a bit like the toolbox you've got to have some skills up there uh, and some ways of uh, is it filtering or whatever the word is all these millions of images that you've got stored um, the front bit is quite important in editing and sort of yeah. like far well you've done the filing but kind of knowing what to do with them if you know what i mean well isn't that like the problem with education that education is based on a victorian model where we believe that remembering stuff is really important but not knowing what to do with the stuff that we've remembered so like, i don't need to remember anything all i need to know is how to manipulate those collisions so actually can i just i don't want to say much more but when you said at the beginning that you didn't have any skills, I know I know you were making a much more bigger point, but we've we've ended. This is not the end of it, but you're kind of saying actually, here's here's what I do. These are the skills I've got. I've got this front part of my brain, which does X, but the back part has got all this incredible material, and I've got loads more of it, and that could keep me going for another you know, hundred years if I wanted to. And so that's the that's the skill as a director in a way. I guess so. Yeah. I in think concrete scariest, terms, yeah. yeah. I think the scariest thing. I'm going to start it, taking more photos. I think. <laughs> start filing them. I think. The, <laughs> yeah, you, you should just copy me. Can I? <laughs> can I? I could send you some of mine. Please no, do. I'll, I'll give you I my email. The, pro the problem. <laughs> the problem with doing the the um, collecting all these ideas is that there's obviously not enough time to make them up, which is kind of depressing. And I guess the other bad thing about collecting is uh, ideas is that you can i mean i can become a bit obsessive about it so i'd sent three batches to print in the last two weeks and i meant to only send a batch every two months just have a day how, how big is otherwise batch? a batch so this week i've probably printed 500 photos but they i mean a lot of them you know you take 100 out of pictures of my kids and then 100 are the same idea that uh and then some of them are cooking recipes out of the paper <laughs> stuff like that so i don't know it's sort of like a physical instagram you've got going on How it is like that record their lives but and this, everything they see the, i think the difference is that with instagram you only see one thing at a time but you can you know with when the system that I have is, um, it's like an overview. He's seeing everything at once. I'm making a work at the moment that's um, a photograph of a human, like a, a study of a human anatomy study, but taken in, in a 3D scanner, because obviously it's like 210 cameras. And what's really interesting about that as a sort of mechanism for portraiture, and only showing the photos, not making a model with it, using them as cameras. So what's really interesting about that is the thing that we lack that's yeah, a great the greatest human quality that we, we lack so much, especially now, I think, is empathy. And empathy is related to perspective or multiple perspective. And that shows you the same thing exactly the same nanosecond from 100 210 different perspectives and i think that is so interesting um Move i was going to ask about because you said uh you've obviously worked a lot in education but then since then you've won, run the uh, fairfield um residency program uh, i was wondering if that was still going or if you had any other projects based on that i think it's a really important 
thing, especially in a time where yeah. Erasmus isn't existing anymore because of Brexit. And um, I mean, there is still opportunities if you go on websites like resartist.com and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I was wondering if that's something you're still working on at the moment. It's not, it's not happening. And it's, I mean, I've done things in different ways. There was that. And then there was, we tried to buy this school and then we ran some things here for a bit. And then we did night school at my studio and we did night school at the ICA for a year. And so I did these free tutorials online and in a way it's all Fairfield International. It doesn't even need a name. It's just like, I I mean, there's two ways of thinking about it. One is that whatever I've got, I got because people were good to me. And the other way of thinking about it is that, you know, all the old middle-aged overweight white guys that run massive companies they run them really badly because they're not close to the culture of education where all the young kids who do startups you see their companies grow really rapidly because they're close to the culture of learning and i think you know life long learning is what all humans should do you know, you, the greatest privilege is to go to the library. Learning is ace. It's like, I, well, I'm not going to play PlayStation because I can learn something. What a waste of time, you know. It's like the great malaise of humankind is uh, this idea that when you've been to school, you know everything. And again, you know, the world changes so quickly that if you if you ask yourself a question, you answer it when you're 17 years old. And then you're asked it again when you're like 52 and you answer the same thing. It's going to be wrong. You have to keep asking yourself the same question because the world changes around you. So being afraid of learning because you're older and you've learned everything is like terrible disease for humanity. It's a really, really, really bad thing. Like learning's ace. So for me, it's also the fact that I want to learn stuff and the best place to learn stuff is from people who don't think like you. You know, a lot of people have their opinions and they find it very, very difficult to talk to people with different opinions. I think it's like, re I mean, it is hard, isn't it? Especially when it's something that you politically don't agree with whatsoever, but you have to do it because that's how you learn. And you might, you, you know, it might be that your opinion is still correct. I'm not saying it's, a way of changing your opinion it's just again that is empathy that's the ability to see from multiple perspectives at once not be stuck in your own stagnant answer so being around yeah like young artists and talking to them for me is like dead exciting really really like it it's like makes me think differently and that's what i need do you think traveling helps with that sort of perspective as well sort of learning from different yeah, places absolutely. and cultures and... um I, yeah i mean i I've, I've lived probably i've probably spent like at least a third of my life not living in britain maybe longer like i've lived or i've lived in the netherlands for like five years and I mean, I've I've rented apartments in like L.A., Paris, uh, Nice, New York, London. Um, or, you know, I've been in New Zealand. I've been I've been loads. I've lived in loads of places, um, and I think you do. It is interesting learning about other cultures, but I think weirdly the the best thing about traveling is being a stranger. It's sitting in a cafe or whatever and not being able to understand what the people next to you are talking about. Because what that I think what that does is makes you invisible. It makes you an observer rather than a participant. And when you're an observer, you study. It's the same as going into a gallery, isn't it, and everything being charged and highlighted for you as being culturally significant. And then when we go outside, we don't see anything anymore, even though the world's full of stimuli. It's the same thing. I think when you're when you feel like a stranger, 
you feel like an anthropologist and so your mind is working differently i think that's what i enjoy the most about traveling it's like um I'm, it's not like i'm just learning about the culture it's like i am a i'm properly studying you know it feels like study which is lovely yeah i think the comfort zone thing's weird because yeah i think i was saying at the beginning it's like it's it's not that good for your career as an artist to ensure that i mean you know i don't mind talking about Loads of artists don't like talking about money or career or networking or all that stuff. But it's just like everyone in the world is motivated by money, especially if you've got a family. Everyone in the world understands that money is an incredible enabler of other things. And it's your agency to choose what you spend your money on. That in itself, they are two facts. There's nothing you can argue about those things. So I'm not scared of talking about money at all. Um, and and yeah, I come across artists who are really scared about talking about money all the time, which is weird. But um, I can't even remember the point of that. <laughs> what, what was yours? What was your comfort again? zone? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, talking about out of comfort zone. But mm. I think the money question is very important. Oh yeah, you know, it's, um, yes, it's art the, for its value in itself, zone. or you know, yeah. the value of art, and there is a whole world around art as currency. Mm. And you've used yeah. the vending machines a lot to display and distribute work at sort of a more affordable um, sort of market level, which is really nice. And it, yeah, I really like that idea of distributing it. I was wondering if you had a favourite vending machine, actually. Um, personally, I've, I've favorite, been to been to Amsterdam recently. And there's, there's a place called Fibo that distributes croquettes, which is really <laughs> nice. <laughs> Do you know, um, when I lived in Amsterdam, the, there was Fibos everywhere and they were just part of the culture. Every Dutch town had done. How, how, what are these things? What do they do? It's like a, it's like a shop that's a vending machine mm. of mm. War, lukewarm food. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen a pizza Lukewarm fried food. Right. Yeah. Mm. The favourite vending machine is the first one, which which ironically, because you said you liked that they were they had a sort of equality of mm. distribution mm. of low value art was uh, the value. And I think it was 5,000 euros for a vend. So it was a vending machine that everything cost 5,000 euros. <laughs> and it was just full of stones mm. from Oldborough beach, the beach by our house from a one mm. uh, and a one had bundles of 5,000 euros with elastic mm. band around them so in and it was a random vending machine and it only was and it was credit card only obviously because mm. you have to put a load of coins in to get mm. five thousand mm. but what we really it was shown in paris the first time maybe three or four years ago and the first time we showed it it was instantly shut down which made it even better for me but it was shut down because if you uh hack a vending machine to be a random vend it's not a vending machine anymore it's gambling so you need oh. a gambling license oh, wow. because there's an element of chance of what you get mm. and then the other thing it was shut down for was if you use a credit card and you vend cash you need a license to be an atm mm. because you're draw withdrawing cash which can't be traced using a digital transaction so i broke two laws at, at the opening which was amazing so it was shown in tokyo last month but it was shown with a note on it and it's been shown in switzerland with a note on it saying that it can't be turned on have you ever delved into making nfts or is that something you wouldn't want to consider or have you done that before uh <laughs> i spent two years saying it was ridiculous and i wasn't going to make one and i am actually making one oh, okay <laughs> I'm a massive sellout. No, I'm making one about, I mean, because my work, you know, I'm really interested at the moment in the value of things and what what our imagined values are and why we put importance on some things and not other things. And the NFT thing is like a perfect example of that. So I'm making a, an, an NFT that questions your integrity if you buy it when, when mean, will that come out i don't know it's in korea with the gallery i work with in seoul um and they're working on it now 
But I mean, I make I'm making like a quarter of a million coins for the Manchester International Festival, so I'm making work about money, but money that doesn't represent currency all the time. So it seemed to make sense, even though I didn't like it as a system. It is strange, isn't it? Because you've got bitcoins as well. So NFTs sell, you buy NFT work with bitcoins. So it's a whole nother level of trading Mm. and ideas. It's like there's just too much, too, too much. That's, that was it. There's too much. It's, it was someone messaged me. One of the mums from my middle kid's school wanted something for the PTA raffle. And she messaged me this morning. And then, so I got someone to get some books and stuff out. And then I was like, tried to find her number. I was like, oh, she messaged me. No, she WhatsApp me. No, she messaged me on Instagram. No, it was Facebook. It's like, there's just too much. (laughs) There's way too much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same with NFTs and Bitcoins. It's like, you have a regulated currency that works really well. Why? Why have another one? It doesn't make any sense. It's the psychology so. of it all, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. It's like well, trading stickers and or cards or any of the things you do as a kid. Some yeah. of them have yeah. huge yeah. value for some reason, and others have none. Yeah. Skill trading's good, isn't it? Go yeah. back to. Skill I've got training. a question. I don't know if we've got time. Um, I've been going to Germany quite a lot. You're talking about being a foreigner or being a an outsider and i've i've done a fair bit of that in germany and i've sort of picked the picked the language up a bit i've been studying it a little bit and um subsequently i've been to a few exhibitions in germany um and um uh i I don't know if there's a different cut exhibitions have a slightly different atmosphere or different culture there they certainly value um art highly and uh, i was in a in the black forest recently and I went to an exhibition of a quite a minor artist. I mean, you know, that, that's what that's how he was billed. Called his name was Paul Hubner, and um, he did pictures. They're pictures of of pictures that he did before the Second World War, pictures when he was in the army in the Wehrmacht, and then pictures after the war. And they they changed completely. You know, um, not sure what my question is, other than the fact that perhaps if I hadn't been an outsider, um, I sort of reflected on that a little bit and wondered if when I think about my life, you know, I never had to go through a war. Um, I've not had to learn a foreign language. Everyone I met in Germany can speak English. And there seemed maybe I was thinking that, that this country had a, a vibrancy uh, in a sense, a sort of an intellectual vibrancy that maybe has been caused by them being by them being outside their comfort zone since 1945. And when I come back to Britain, you know, I've done this a few times, I'm thinking, yeah, we're in, this is a, this is a different, we, we're in Europe, but it's a very different world, you know. Um, and these sort of thoughts have f- flitted across my brain during the Brexit thing and, you know, and uh, it's sort of knowing a little bit about another place gives me a slightly different perspective of my own place. Yeah, not sure what I'm saying there, but you know, no, I understand. Do you know Um, what I mean? I mean, that could be a motivator for me to do stuff, yeah, Yeah. perhaps, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I I mean, I guess I, I, uh, those of us who can travel are massively Mm. privileged, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we are, because we get the ability to see things from a different perspective, yeah. I I think, like the hardest thing for humans is to have a limited perspective. And so there's a lot of people, especially in Britain, more than other countries that I disagree with massively. Um, But I also feel sorry for them because they have a limited perspective on the world. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And that's partly to do because we live on a tiny pokey island (laughs) where nothing works. That's right, yeah, where nothing works. We've got good pubs though. Yeah, there's, 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 there's good pubs, come on. And we've yeah. still got a sense of humour, even though nothing works. a sense works. of humour. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a particular connection to Japan? Mm, I was going to ask that I well. do. Yeah. That is a good question. And it's, a, it's funny because, yeah, no, I mean, 75% of my artwork that's owned by 
museums and collectors is in Japan, which is crazy. And I've had more shows in Japan than any other country in the world. Uh, in fact, in 2014, I think, I had nine solo shows in Japan, not, not including all the group shows. And I've been twice a year, every year for 15 years. Um, and I've made a program, like a cultural documentary about the semiotics of Japan for the BBC. And a lot of my friends are Japanese. I have a work, yeah, I do collections for a clothing company there, two clothing companies there. Um, I have a national holiday that I invented in Fukuoka, which is called New New Day, which is celebrated every year. So yeah, there's a lot of connection to Japan. Did that um, come about by chance? Came about because I met a lad called Taro when I was younger. He wanted to open a gallery, <laughs> and there was, and he said, "Do you want a show?" And I was like, "Yeah." And then his gallery ended up as the the biggest, best contemporary art gallery in Tokyo. Weird, but I was like the first show, you know, first Western artist to show there. But now he works with like oh, everyone, you know, Pierre Weekly and Gillick, loads of amazing, amazing, amazing artists. Um, but yeah, it's funny, and I, and loads of people ask me why my work's so popular in Japan. Because you know, I've never been nominated for the Turner Prize, but I've won all the others. It's it's kind of, and like, you know, I've done a show at South London Gallery, like, oh god, when I was, I don't know, twenty nine, like, and that was the last museum show I had in London. I don't have a public sculpture in London, but I do in most other big cities. But I will have one next year, but it's only happened now. And I don't know, you know, not that I'm bitter. I'm really bitter about the Turner Prize. The biggest chip on my shoulder. Um, no, but, you know, I just, I live in, I do live in Britain. And, yeah, I just don't feel very British. And I don't think my work's particularly British um and it is surprising to me why it japanese people have a, a more of an affinity with it um and i i guess i mean there's that thing that i said earlier about shintoism and the culture of objects being vessels for stories you know like and I, and that relates to what i've always done is that i've always had this understanding that the object that we make which everyone calls art isn't actually the art it's the idea or the backstory or the fable making or the rumor or the gossip that is created by that thing that is the art and that thing which everyone calls art is actually just a byproduct of it so it's like a receipt or the fallout or, or the offcut or just the the thing the vessel that holds the story and that is that is pretty like Kami, the soul of objects and Shinto understanding of it. So, I and, don't know. And that's something a Japanese audience would understand intuitively. I don't know because I'm not Japanese, but it's, I can't, you know, because people have asked me before and obviously I've thought about it a lot. Why, why is there so much work for me? Why are there so many reasons for me to go to Japan? Um, and I don't fully understand it, to be honest, but perhaps that's one of the reasons. I'm opening a bar um, in Japan, which is, which is pretty good, um, in Kanazawa, and it's uh, going to be called Ryan's Bar. You know, like a really rubbish Irish pub. <laughs> terrible, terrible Irish pub. But what's funny about that is if you opened uh, an art bar in... Manchester and you called it Ryan's Bar it'd be terrible but if you do that in Kanazawa it's like really cool so it's maybe it's just the the exotic exoticism of if you take one culture and put it in another cultural context it transforms it into something better maybe that's why I've never been in the bloody Turner Prize <laughs> you'll get there Could be. you'll get it it's the next Could one <laughs> who cares yeah. Would they be able to get a pint of Adnams in Ryan's Bar in Tokyo? That is a brilliant idea, actually. <laughs> that is a really. I was just okay. going to do cocktails, but I might do oh, halves of Adnams. Halves of Adnams, yeah. Broadside. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
We have a little keg of that at Christmas in our house. Nice. Mini keg, yeah. Do you? you? get them from the brewery, can't you? Ghost ship's good. Ghost ship. Oh, ghost ship. Ghost ship 0.03%. Is it? No, 0.3%. Because you can have a pint and then you can have like 20, 20 of them. Pints. And you can have 20 that's the other problem with living in the countryside. Mm. Is you can only have one drink and then it's early well, to bed. Yeah, well. Light the fire, get your Horlicks on. That's get good. under the electric blanket. Under don't the, put the electric yeah. blanket over you. No, don't. Whatever don't you get do. under it. Don't get under it. I know it's get called the blanket, it. but get it, goes, it. Yeah. it goes underneath. Yeah. Yeah. There. Great. I just want to say, like, I'm really impressed by the setup. People <laughs> on listening to the radio can't see what i can see but it's so pro you're like you got like neon signs and proper mics and the whole <laughs> kit like it, i feel like i'm literally mm. on cnn or something yeah, it's amazing. Are, yeah. <laughs> i've just got one last question uh yeah. if you could design one handout for an art school that you would open uh, what would that handout consist of as a as a takeaway for students? Is it design it or is it choose something from the world? It's the, it could be a literally anything. It could be yeah. Uh, I am for an art by Klaus Oldenburg from Art in Theory. I know it's classic and it's a bit stereotypical. Best line: I am for an art of the blind man's stick and its conversation with the sidewalk. Boom! Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. 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 Well, thanks very much for joining us. Um, no pleasure. It's been thanks an absolute pleasure. Me. Thanks for listening to Artcast. Today we were joined by Ryan Gander, OBE, Steve Harrison, and Emma Allen for our HNC in Fine Art. You can check out Ryan Gander's work on the Listen Gallery website and also the Royal Academy website. And do make sure you watch some of his video interviews on YouTube, they're really fascinating. Next time round, we'll be joined by a street art collaborative pair called Fail, live from New York. <laughs> <laughs>